Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it. And as you're turning there, the Gideons came and shared, and, and, and they really are a neat ministry. And to see in my, the course of my life as it unfolds how the Gideon presence has, has influenced me for years traveling around as a Navy SEAL, in drunken moments, in times of desperation, I would go to the, the, you know, the corner of the hotel bed and pull out a Gideon's Bible, fumble through it. You know, I, I kind of laugh at the gunner back then because I, I always had such a hard time understanding it. And to know that they're in the back of the, of it, there's, there's a, there's a, f- a very easy user friendly manual, but I never found it back then. Um, and today, when I go to hotels, there's just something nice about being able to open up. You know, it's kind of the first thing whenever I go to a hotel, kind of open up that door. Hey, there it is. And uh, it's, it's nice to see and nice to be influenced by it. As a police chaplain, it's nice being in law enforcement areas and seeing those little Gideon New Testaments lying around and officers fumbling through. It's a great end for me as a chaplain to start talking with them about spiritual things. Um, going as far as Mongolia last year, traveling to visit our, our missionaries, going to one of their Bible studies with one of the very few um, churches in Mongolia to see a Gideon's New Testament lying there was like, wow, they really, if, if the translators create a, a translation, the Gideons will start producing it and getting it to places. And it's amazing how the word has gone out. And like Isaiah says, that it, God's word will not return void. Um, on another note, yesterday was the walk for life. We had a good turnout from our church. The initial um, raising right now is like $45,000 over yesterday's walk. So, so thank you for everybody who prayed and participated and gave. And, and it's, it's a neat little ministry that we're connected with. We're going to pray and we're going to read Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through whenever I stop. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, it's amazing to see how your work... Your word works and moves and transforms lives. Uh, Father, we come before you today. We ask for help. Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Father, I I ask personally for help, Lord, that today's text, the next few weeks, is is could be one of the most difficult passages I've I've had to teach on. Father, the word, the wisdom in your word, the wisdom that Jesus spoke far exceeds my comprehension and my ability. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to communicate that which you want me to communicate, that I would be faithful to your word. Uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, as a side note, that's Nathaniel, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. 
And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask for help again. May you guide us and direct us as we go through this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I stopped before the Sermon on the Mount. Um, At this point in the Gospel of Luke, it's a transitional sort of um, place. Luke, up to this point, has been showing the man Jesus who he is, investigating who he is, explaining him Uh, to the man Theophilus that he's writing the letter to. The first four verses say that out of all the things that Jesus did, many people attempted to make an account of what happened, that they would record the historical event of the things that he did. No person in human history has had a greater influence on all of mankind. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, Jesus historically transformed the world, our calendars, everything. And Luke said, I need to investigate this. He is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. He wasn't there during the time of Jesus's life. He met the the apostles later. He gave his life to Christ. He was a medical doctor. History now records him as a historian because of the great work which he did recorded in the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He interviewed people. He got all the facts, all of the data, and then he wrote it out in historical fashion. In the Gospel of Luke, Contrasted with the other Gospels, Luke has his own sort of agenda that he's trying to get out. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, up to this point, he's showing who Jesus was, that he's the Messiah, showing evidence of his miracles, um, some of his teaching, no sermons, but responding to critics, doing healings, people are coming and flocking, investigating who is this Jesus, and lives are being changed. Last week or two weeks ago before Easter, it kind of came as a crescendo. The Pharisees were jumping out of bushes. What is he doing on the Sabbath? He's breaking all of our rules. He responded to them, showed him that showed them that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he created the Sabbath, that he has authority over all. And that passage ended in verse 11 with these Pharisees, the religious leaders getting very angry. He says that they were filled with anger and they began to plot how they could kill him. Luke is now transitioning. In every person's life, you may be here coming to investigate who Jesus is. That's great. We want to help you come to know who he is, investigate the facts. That's why we offer the free case for Christ. But there comes a point in a person's life for every Christian, once you come and see that then Jesus begins pressing us, now follow after me. And this transition comes with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has two sermons that he gives in his life. There's teachings that happen along the way. But the Sermon on the Mount found here in Luke, also in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In Matthew, it's much longer. The reason is because Matthew is showing to the Jewish people that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And so there's additional teaching that related to the Mosaic law, how Jesus taught and understood this. Luke, being a Gentile, a non, 
Jewish person writing to a non-Jewish audience kind of removes that all the, the Jewishness of it. So that's why his version is somewhat shorter because for those of us who are Gentiles, we don't wrestle with issues of translating the Jewish law because we, we don't come from that background. <clears throat> Bless you. So you have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and then towards the end of his life, you have the Olivet Discourse. You have God in human flesh giving a sermon. I can tell you today that I feel totally and completely inadequate in teaching on this. It's going to take us the whole month, or not the whole month, four weeks to get through the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has influenced all kind of people for the last 2,000 years. Politicians who are not believers will quote truths from this sermon. People will be dumbfounded by the things that are said. It's radical. And I truly think that the only person who is adequate to teach on this is Christ. And so I'm coming as a student of this, trying to convey what I'm learning, how God is like tearing me apart throughout the week, studying through the sermon. It's rough. And I can guarantee you that all this next week, as soon as I'm done preaching here, I'll have like, oh, I should have said that because it's profound. Like we can't in our finite brains fully take it on. Like we can't understand it. And I think that's what God does is, you know, and we're going to look at some passages later. I'm not, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But, but it's very humbling looking at this text. And all of us, it's going to take work. I'm going to give you homework today and ask that you read the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over and over again. Because God will do stuff in your life as you read it. But the text begins in verse 12. It says it was at this time or literally in these days. Luke isn't pointing to a specific time frame as he's telling his story. He's transitioning now. Now he's going to start talking about Jesus now really meddling in those that are following him now stepping up the commitment level to those that are following after him. And it was during these times it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And so we have the little map up here just to orientate us. The little pointer. This is the Dead or the Sea of Galilee. There's a river that runs north-south, which is called the Jordan. Jordan. Okay. And then there's a big lake down here that's called the Dead Sea. Okay. So most likely, the text doesn't say where this happens. Most people believe, and there's a historic site today that the Catholic Church has built up on the north western side of the sea of galilee up on a hill somewhere up in this region is where this happened he goes up on the hill we're told that he spent the entire night in prayer as soon as i find my in prayer to god now what i'm not going to do is i'm not going to use this verse to suddenly start putting a guilt trip into our lives that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. When was the last time you guys spent the whole night in prayer? You guys don't pray. None of us pray. None of us pray as we should. Amen. And, and this passage can be used to like guilt to shame us. Make us feel guilty and horrible that, that, that Jesus did this. And it's interesting that, that two weeks ago we looked at the Sabbath and all of these the rules that were being created. And Jesus said, I'm Lord of it all. I'm above it. But then when we start looking at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the things he says, he absolutely decimates the Mosaic law in its complexity. 
the law of Christ is so much deeper and so much more authority and so much more impossible to keep that it brings us to our knees. It shows us that we totally need God's grace. There's nothing that we can do in our own strength to, to fulfill this. And here I am. I've got to teach on it. <laughs> and I'm totally inadequate. Now, listening to um, my, uh, what's his name? Alistair Begg. On this verse, what he said, one thing he points out that I like. He said, you know, the nice thing about this verse is all of us in Christ have access to the same fellowship with the Father if we choose to take it. If you're struggling and you're stressed at night, if you're going through good times or bad times, you have this same sort of intimacy available to you by God that you can go to him in prayer if we'd only take him up on it. Not to guilt you that you're not enough, but to think that there's this huge resource that we can communicate with the Father, the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's a wonderful thing. And what he didn't say, but is in the text, this phrase here that we read in the English, whole night, like that he spent the whole night. It's a, it's, it, it, in some translations, it's even more. <clears throat> this is the only place this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. This is very unique, this spending the whole night in prayer to the Father. It's only mentioned here. Jesus is about to start making some major decision. He's choosing the apostles. He's calling them out, the founders of the, the coming church. And so he's praying all night, and we're told in verse 13, and when day came, so he's up there praying, day comes. We see that Jesus often, in previous, that he pulls away, he prays, he gets clarity, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And now days come up, and he called his disciples to him. This isn't, his, this isn't just the 12. The disciples can be, this is a follower of Christ, one who wants to be like the rabbi. So there's this huge crowd we're going to see. He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Very rarely do we see the text referring to Jesus saying the word apostles at this stage in the game. And so he, from this crowd, we're going to see there's a huge crowd that's been coming to see Jesus, following after him. And of the, he starts picking his team. He calls out these 12 guys. I could spend months on this. Guys have written books on the 12 apostles. Apostles means sent one. He's going to send these out after his departure. He's training them. He's equipping them. He's going to be executed. He's going to be buried for three days. He's going to rise from the grave. He's going to spend another 40 days with them. And then he's going to ascend to the Father. Ten days later at Pentecost, these 12 guys are going to lead the new church that's created at Pentecost when the Spirit came in and dwelt them. And so of these 12, we read there's Simon. This is Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. That's Nathaniel. And Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is unique. We can miss this in our English culture, American culture. See, during this day, these are, these, are, these are men, grown men. None of them are in the ministry. They are fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, all kinds of different backgrounds. During this day, the, the formal education, how it worked, is that you had Beth Safer, which was the first form of training from the ages of 6 to 10 years old. Every 6 to 10 years old would go to the, um, the synagogue, would study with the teacher there. They would learn the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. By 10, they would have memorized the entire five books of the, the Old Testament. At that point, 
the most elite, only a, a, a handful, a, a, a few selected would be chosen to go on to the next level of training. The rest at six, at 10 years old say, you go to your family's business, you learn your father's trade, you begin to become a man and to grow and disciple or to, to follow up in your family's trade. But if you were of that selected group that showed the capacity to learn and study, you were invited to continue on to Bet Talmud, which would go from the ages of 10 years old to 14 years old. During this time, you would continue studying the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi. At 13 or 14 years old, you would have memorized the entire Old Testament. Just to, just to like highlight this. It really makes me feel bad because I can barely memorize a verse. We're talking like this much, the thick part. Memorized. It was oral tradition. Not everybody. We are so blessed. And I can't tell, man, that we each have our own copy of the Bible. I have like so many translations on the computer. I can just plug it in and zoop, go wherever I need. They like memorized it because there was like for every community, they would have sections of the Bible. And so they would have to memorize it. It would be told to them, oral tradition. So by 13 to 14 of this group, as they memorize the Bible, the Old Testament, of this very elite group, then there was even a smaller elite group that said, man, you have huge potential. You should probably go try to find a rabbi and study under a rabbi. And this was called um, Bet Midrast, which is the, the house of the house of study. And so you go find a rabbi. You go interview with a rabbi. Now, just as a sidebar, Jesus at 12 years old was in the temple during the festival questioning and dialoguing with the rabbis, dumbfounding them. Jesus didn't study under a rabbi, yet he was called rabbi more than 30 times in the New Testament, recognized as a rabbi, yet no formal education. <laughs> you don't need it when you're God. <laughs> when you wrote the book and you created everything, you kind of have a head start on everybody. But for those 13 to 14 that they felt like that they were that people said, hey, you've got something you man. If, if one of these students came out of your town, go study under somebody. None of the apostles, except for Paul. Was under he studied under Gamaliel, which was the most elite rabbi of all to study under him. You had to be a genius. The most perfect person, this is totally on a sidebar because Rick, but Paul, you know. But think about the most qualified, the most powerful person, according to rabbinic tradition with Paul, was in that lineage to become the, the great high priest. What better person than going to say the Gentiles have been grafted and nobody could argue against his credentials. You take the most powerful in the Jewish system and you say, he's going to be my man to bring the Gentiles in because nobody's going to be able to describe powerful. Gives me goosebumps thinking of how God's just kind of incredible when he has his plan together. But so Bet Mitzrash, you would go and you would find a rabbi. You knock on his door. He'd have his students, 10, 15, however many, five, seven, small group. Sir, I'd like to, I've been through everything. I would like to study under you. I would like to take your yoke upon me. Their, their teaching, their commentary on the scriptures was called their yoke. When Jesus says, my, lo, my yoke is light, you know that one? He's talking about his teaching. And my burden is light, yeah. 
So then the rabbi would say, okay, let me ask you some questions. Let's dialogue over the text. How much Bible do you know? Yada, 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 yada. Most students at the end of this were not qualified to study under the rabbi. What the rabbi would say to these people, I love Jewish people and I love Jewish culture and I can totally see a rabbi saying this. He would look at the student and say, you, you do know the Bible. You know a lot. You're very gifted. But you can't take on my yoke. What you need to do is go home, have lots of kids, and pray that God would raise up a rabbi from one of your children. Like, that's what he told him. Go home and have babies. Start praying that one of your kids could be a rabbi someday. They'd go home and they'd work. I say all of this to point out what Jesus does when he calls the apostles, first thing is he went to them. This was unheard of. Students come to the teacher. Jesus would constantly remind them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Well, that makes sense now. Because a rabbi, you would go and you'd interview and hopefully you get selected. But Jesus went and called them out. All of these guys are working in the vocational ministry. They didn't cut it by the religious standard. They were dropouts. We don't know when they failed out of the system. Jesus took the, the, the ones that nobody thought was worth of anything. And then finally, when you look at this, this group of characters, man, the diversity in this group is hilarious. We can't cover everybody, and I'm going like, to fall into the category that I normally criticize because Thomas gets such a bad rap. I don't think his rap, I don't think he deserves it. But I'll give it to him today just because it's interesting because a lot of other guys do it. Peter, hardcore, man, he sees Jesus walking across the, the lake. Jesus, you just say the word and I'll walk out there. He jumps off a boat in the middle of the night and starts walking. He does all kind of crazy stuff like this. Jesus, they're not kill you. I'll go and I'll kill them all and I'll die protecting you. Okay, Peter, calm down, calm down. Then you have Thomas, who's the more timid one. But even more funny than this, Simon the Zealot, the Simon... They said the one they called Zealot. So he didn't go by Simon when they saw me. Hey, what's up, Zealot? What's up, crazy man? He was in a group, you know, and I don't mean this to offense to anybody. But this is your like extreme. Like in every group, there's a range of people. Take your very most extreme tea party person today. Text enough already. We don't want any more government. Just get out of our lives. Down with the government. Shut it down completely. This is Simon the Zealot. Then you have Matthew the tax collector, who is the government. And I don't know if this, this exists, but I'm trying to think of a comparable model. If there was a union boss for the IRS, this is Matthew. And they're together. All of these personalities... But they're focused on Christ and his mission. And we as a church need to take this to heart. It's so easy. Like as believers, we have political interests. We have things that we stand for. And I encourage everybody to vote, be involved. That's how we're submitting to our government. We're to be involved. We're to be out there. But this church, our focus is the gospel. I don't care what your political background is. We love you. I don't care. It's not, oh, how can you be a Christian if you're a Democrat? Only Republicans are. No. If Jesus would hear, he'd smack you. Well, he probably wouldn't because he would do. If I was God and I was here, I would. 
It's it's about Jesus loved all. We're, this sermon on the mount is gonna like it's gonna tear me. Like I'm already going. Man, the next four weeks is gonna be rough. So we have these guys. They're focused on Christ. He doesn't care where they've been. He doesn't care their positions. He wants to teach them about his ways. And then this crowd is developing, verse 17. So he chooses his 12. Luke doesn't really expound on these guys, so I'm not going to either, for the time's sake. Verse 17, Jesus came down with them. So he's on the hill. He comes down on a flat spot, a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples, not the 12. Huge crowd of people who were following after him, who had come, they'd seen, they'd investigated. They wanted to follow after the rabbi. They wanted to study under him, just like students do. He'd come down to a flat spot and everybody's up on the hill. He had the Sea of Galilee behind him. So you have natural acoustics that would project his voice up to the crowd. He comes down to this flat spot, large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people. So there's huge crowd of people. I don't use the word throng that much, but it's a whole bunch. And the people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Let me show you where this is. So they're up in this location, the northwest part of Sea of Galilee. You have Jerusalem somewhere down here. There it is, Jerusalem. This whole region is Judea. So there's people from the southern region of Israel. Now Tyre and Sidon from the coastal region. It's not on this map. But there's the Sea of Galilee, then you have the um, this smaller lake up here. If you were to go over the coast and go up modern-day Lebanon is where these two towns were. Almost, I mean, literally right where the map cuts off is where these two towns are. And so these people have come. They flocked to see Jesus and his teaching. They'd come for a multitude of reasons. Three, verse 18, they had come to hear him. So that all through Luke, we hear about Jesus' teaching. Luke doesn't tell us what he's teaching. He shows him when he's teaching and the Pharisees come and then he starts kind of bantering with the Pharisees. But he like up to this point, he hasn't said, oh, this is what he's been teaching to the people. But the word had gotten out that this teacher taught man, it was different than everybody. There was life. There was hope. He taught in a way, trained, transformed lives. Word got out. They want to come see him. So they came to hear him. The other thing, they came to be healed of their diseases. They hear, man, this guy's healing people's like hands, raising people for the dead, all kinds of stuff. He's healing them. I got sickness. I want to go see him. The doctor can't do any good for me. I'm going to go see him. Maybe he'll heal me. Then the third thing we see is those who were troubled with unclean spirits. So there's demon possession. There's demon harassment. In our culture, I think a lot of times this works into like de- depression, discouragement. I, I totally believe that their stuff exists. I think a lot of times there could be spiritual warfare happening in our life that, man, discourages us. And there's Bible verses I could point you to for that. And the Lord can help us. It's encouraging. Paul the Apostle, as he's writing the Bible, says... I thank God who gives hope and cures those who are depressed. And he was one of them, that he was so low and that they sent Timothy and then Timothy encouraged him. And they were being cured in verse 19 and all the people trying to touch him, see, trying to touch him because there's such a great crowd around him, trying to fight your way through a crowd just to like 
touch him. People are touching him. And then we read that his power was coming out of them and healing them. He's just walking. Somebody's like, oh, got him. Woo-hoo, fixed. So the Bible says. Crazy to me. Doesn't make sense. It's a miracle. Miracles transcend normal natural law that God gave us. God can bypass natural law. That, but if it happened all the time, it wouldn't be a miracle. Like this was abnormal. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, so all of this is going on. He gets down to a flat spot. He begins to speak. Oh, they come to hear him speak. They're going to be quiet. Sit down. Do whatever. He's talking now. We're going to listen. And before I go into this, I want to reiterate. Jesus gave two sermons. Sermon on the Mount. This is one. The Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, towards the end of his ministry, speaking of future times. This, this is also recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, if you want to do some homework this week and read up on it. These words that we're about to read are eternally powerful. To think that politicians who have are atheists will quote these words and not even know they're quoting the Bible. He totally, in this sermon, ups the ante on the Mosaic law. Like, we think that the Old Testament is hard. He's making it totally impossible. Removing any hope of anything of you thinking that you can attain this. It'll take us four weeks, including today, to get through this sermon. But the problem is, there's a lot of guys that will write an entire book on this sermon, or will take seven years preaching on this sermon that you lose the context. So what we're going to do is, although I'm only covering six verses of it to today, we're going to read each week the whole sermon because he gave it in one setting. And so we need to keep it in context. So I'll read the whole thing and then we'll address the first six verses. So let's continue through the rest of this chapter. Verse 20. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when men all, wait, when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I think I might have read that twice there. Um, (laughs) um, If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after He has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who who dug a deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well, had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. When he completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So there's the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much in this that seems familiar. We hear people quoting it, referencing it, not having a clue where it came from. When I look at this and prepare and start examining my own life, it's like, man, I am so much trouble. I got to teach this. I struggle with this. All week I'm up getting distracted over and over again. How am I going to preach on this? How am I going to teach? I'm the student here. Only Jesus can truly like answer your questions. I, I am not adequate to, to explain this sermon to you, but I'm going to do the best I can. As I look at this and I've, I've prayed and I said, Lord, how, how am I able to, to, to fulfill this in my own life? A couple passages came to mind. One is just before the Gideon's verse. The Gideon's verse is Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, I believe. But in Isaiah 55, Verses 8 through 9, Isaiah writes this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. I look at this. This is God speaking. The depth. This cuts against everything that I kind of like in my flesh. This cuts against everything that I think is the right way to respond. I think, oh, in my own wisdom, you go right. And God says, no, 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 no. Make a hard left turn. Whoops. I really blew that one. Seriously. Like the first six verses, there's four, three. Okay. I got the right enough fingers. You know, how I say there's four things. Whoops. No, four things <laughs> that are contrasted. We see money, food, happiness, and popularity. Blessed. And then woe to thee. Same four things in order contrasted with one another. As Christians, we do it all the time. We asked, how are you doing? You asked me, how are you doing? Hey, I got money in my bank account. I had a great meal at Chipotle yesterday. All my friends like me right now. And I'm happy. I am blessed beyond measure. Like We don't say that. Then I got money in the bank account, food. I'm happy. Everything's going great, man. God has blessed me. Well, according to this, Jesus says, woe to me. Wait a minute. Somebody comes up to you and says, how are you doing? Man, there's a whole lot more month left in, than I have money. Bank accounts are empty. I'm having to go to my credit card. My whole family's angry with me because I'm following Jesus. I'm discouraged right now. And I haven't eaten in like a week. I'm blessed, brother. <laughs> According to this, if we're honest, we all think the same thing. Amen. It doesn't fit. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's my thoughts compared to your thoughts are far above the heavens of the earth. And then I think about Philippians 3.20 through 4.1, which says this. For our citizenship is in heaven. So if you're in Christ and you're a Christian, you've believed upon him and you're saved. Suddenly we're told your citizenship is in heaven. Yes, you live in America. Yes, you're in the United States. Yes, you're on the earth in whatever country you reside. But you're no longer a citizen there. Your citizenship is in heaven. Okay, well, I've never been to heaven. And this last few weeks when the Mannings were in town, the thing that just like one of the like the little things that just kind of boggled my my mind was see they'd left over three years ago. They left with two kids, they came back with four. And little little patience and Naomi, while they're American citizens, and one is three and the other one is one, neither of them had ever set foot on US soil. And they're Americans. Can you imagine growing up in another country? I'm an American. Well, tell me about America. I can't really tell you about America. I've never been there. But I'm a citizen there. And Americans like pancakes, so we love pancakes. He says, okay, it continues. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So yeah, 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 we're here on earth. 
our citizenship's in heaven, and man, we are so longing to go to heaven. We're so longing in our body with its dual natures, totally redeemed, holy, set apart, perfect, unable to sin with our flesh. We're so waiting for the Lord to come back, who's our Savior, because he's going to take this body. He's going to conform it by the power that he created everything, the heavens, the earth, filled them, the seas, everything, the stars in the sky with that same power. That's the power that he's going to use to transform our bodies. And man, we are so looking forward to that day, that day when we can be like him without sin, all the stuff that we go through on this earth. He goes on to say, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. Paul's talking about these people. He's encouraging them. He says, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. And so when I look at this passage, this is Christ teaching his ways, his thoughts, his actions, how we as followers of him are to live. It's his kingdom. He's going to revamp the whole earth. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to come to rule and reign, and his law will be held. But we're in this world. But this is his standard. This is the standard we shoot for. And it's terribly difficult to understand this, but I think it's his perfect design. I notice when I go through this, he doesn't give like necessarily a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a total like heart condition if you really look at the text. And what this does, this text, is it chops us off at the knees and it says, Lord, I'm so desperate for you. We sing so I'm desperate for you. Like, I don't know. The, I'm, it might even not be those three words, but you get the point. Lord, we need help. Because, man, when I look at this, everything I desire, everything I want is not of you. Your way is perfect. I need help. And if we're honest with ourselves, we miss them. And we have to stand in grace. Because our works will not cut it. Our works can't cut it. And so when he says, okay, the first thing, fourth thing, he says, blessed are you who are poor, Matthew says, in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. Some will go on to say that this is a, they'll go on a big diatribe about, oh, if you have any sort of money, you're of the devil. Oh, you're not of God. That's not what it's saying. You have to look at the whole thing. There, and in this path, notice there's a bunch of words. I have them circled, shall, shall, shall. So there's this contrast of future glory in heaven contrasted with your present situation. And so concerning the poor, it says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. If we're honest with ourselves and we evaluate the landscape, politics is not going to solve our issues. When I was in Israel standing there, it was shut down. I really wanted to go through the Hezekiah Tunnel. You like, you wade through water and you plop out on the Palestinian side. And we were not allowed to do that because there was a shooting. There was a guard there, an Israeli guard, who was a believer. And we were talking with him. We were like, man, is there any way we could sneak through? I'm like, dude, I was a Navy SEAL. I feel comfortable. I like chicken shawarmas. I can get along on the Palestinian side. He's like, I can't let you, brother. I'm like, what are your thoughts about what's going on? He says, they're trying to solve spiritual problems through political means. And it will never work. Not until God comes back and restores everything will it happen. There's some wisdom from the gate guard at the city of David. So true. And if we look at my point, if we really evaluate the world through, it's depressing. There's death. 
there's war, there's earthquakes, there's total fear of everything. It's, it's enough to make you cry because this isn't how God designed us to live. And he says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. Now highlight this. This is not a license for Christians to be obnoxious jerks to the whole world. Seriously. Christians look at this and they think, God just flipped me off on the freeway. I'm blessed. No, you shouldn't be. It says, for the sake of the Son of Man. It's not a license to go be obnoxious. You live for Jesus. And as you stand for him, it cuts against the world's philosophy. And I love that he put that guard in there. This persecution, when you live for Jesus, you go, you cut against the world's philosophy. And he says, when they, when they insult you, when they scorn you, when they ostracize you, verse 23, be glad in that day, pushing to the future. And the leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Heaven, heaven, future. Paul and Acts, they were beaten, bloody. I think it was in Philippi, thrown in jail. It's midnight, beaten, bruised, shackled, and they're singing songs. What's the big Christian song that they sing at campfires? The, uh... Oh, yeah, Kumbaya, that one. Like they're like, Kumbaya, my... what? You just got beat up. You're under arrest. They're going to kill you. Paul knew his joy was in heaven. He's standing for Jesus. He doesn't care. This life is temporary, gone like that. Yesterday, my daughter, Grace, she wanted to hear me preach. That's why she's here today. She looks at me, says, Dad, I want to die. Why, baby? Like, let's stop. Have I been, what's going on? She's like, I just want to go be with Jesus. You're like, oh, Grace, I'm 36. Life goes by like this. He has you here now. You don't got to rush into those things. But Paul agrees with, I mean, but it's like this picture of like heaven. But, but for everybody I've talked to, man, the years, like we're all of us already, it's May already. Can you believe it? It's May. Yeah, it happens. January, February, March, May. 30 days in every month. Then they tick through, the sun goes down, the sun comes up. Over the course of life, I've met people that are 97 years old say, man, my life is like that. Talk to you. And everybody in here, amen, brother. It's passing. And I have a point here. Oh, heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward. <laughs> for, for I need a Kleenex. It's like, man, this is, this is depressing. <laughs> yeah, the point is in heaven, it's not going to be like that anymore. It's sin in the world. He goes on to say, for in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. All the prophets, you name them, all of them. Stephen, when he's standing before them, being the first martyr in the Christian church, he said, you killing me is just, what's different? You and your granddaddies from here until all the way back to Adam killed all of the prophets. No surprise. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. They kill them. Then he goes on to the contrast. But woe to you who are rich. For It doesn't say because you have money. It says, but woe to you who are rich. For you are receiving your comfort in full. So it's like God's blessing you. Like you, 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 I hear these ads all the time. 
Do you have a cash settlement? Let us give you one lump sum payment. (laughs) It's your money. You need it now. Let us give you a lump sum and we'll take that payment that goes on and on and on. Yeah, because they're ripping you off. And she's saying, you're getting your reward now. There's less than. He goes on to say, woe to you who are well fed now. You shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Those false prophets everybody loves. Because they say, oh, you just be kind to one another and you're good to go. They, They make it easy. And here Jesus is forcing us to contemplate, to meditate upon things. And I know that my inclination, all of our inclination, is when we read this, but woe to you who are rich. Like, that's not me. It's not me. I see baseball players that sign contracts for millions of dollars. I heard, listening to the Padres game last night, that um, the L.A. Dodgers, um, the guy Martinez or whatever, what is the guy with the big dreadlocks? Um, Manning. He doesn't even play for them. But for the next three years, they're paying him like three, four, five hundred grand a month. And he doesn't even work for them. Now that's rich. That's not me. I would tell us to hold off. Before you dismiss yourself from the rich category, take this statistic into account. The average income worldwide, all people's, I mean, if you have a heartbeat, they're just taken. So it's not totally accurate. The average annual income for every person in the world today is $7,000 a year. That's $585 a month. And only 19% of the world's population lives in a country that you can earn more than $7,000 a month. Our poorest people in the United States are in the wealthiest category of human history. All of us. Most of us were able to eat breakfast unless you didn't want to eat breakfast. Most of us can eat lunch today. And if you can't eat lunch, let us know. We'll give you more food. Like you come to our potlucks, it's ridiculous. I mean, in a good way. (laughs) I don't want to change things around here. (laughs) And I think that these first six verses are like the purpose statement of where he's going to... He's going to start unpacking this. And even as Christians, what he's doing, those who have followed after Christ, believe in Christ, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to expose the selfishness in our heart to realize that we have we, we still redeemed are missing the mark and we need desperately to allow him to work in our lives. I want to close with a couple of verses here. Psalm chapter one. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but you can if you can. Psalms are right in the middle of the right in the middle of the Bible. And in Psalm chapter one or Psalm one, it's not a chapter. It stands alone. The wisdom of the Psalms, the wisdom literature in verse two or verse one, it says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So here you have one who's blessed that's abstaining from certain sort of situations. But the point that I want to get to is verse 2. It says, but his delight, this person who's blessed, his de- delight is in the law of the Lord. And, his, and in his law, he 
meditates. Day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So this person that doesn't do these certain things, he's meditating, he's reading, he's studying, delighting on God's word. And then there's fruit that's produced by studying God's word. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and then I'll kind of close with these, a couple thoughts here. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here between Psalm 1 and Romans chapter 12, verse 2, there's this idea of coupled with Isaiah 55. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't, we don't think like him. And so we need a ton of help. And so that's why we read the Bible. That's why we put it in us. And me just preaching at you guys once a week for an hour. Like we have, like we have long church here. Most pastors preach for 20 to 30 minutes. Every week, you guys listen to me ramble for about an hour. Like most people will tell you, you get a special little stone in heaven on your crown for enduring stuff like this. And we're like, amen, brother. <laughs> Visitors, when they come, is there an intermission at this church service? <laughs> like, I, but, but seriously, even with that, I can't give it to you all. All through this week, I'll think, oh, I studied, I studied, I studied, but oh, I blew it on Sunday. I should have said this. Oh, I thought of this. Between this service and next service, I'll have a, God will do a little bit because his word is living and active. In seminary, one of my professors told me, or the whole class, using a picture of a mama bird. He said, mama birds, we all know, they go and they eat their worms. They swallow their worms or whatever they eat. It starts churning around in their stomach and it turns into like vomity type stuff. And then they go to their baby and they throw up into the baby's mouth. And they provide nutrients to the baby. They do all the work for the baby. And he says, most people in seminary or churches... Want the same thing with the word of God, but you, it doesn't, it works for birds, but it doesn't work with scripture. You gotta meditate on it. You gotta read it, ponder, Lord, I don't, this is, I don't like what this is saying. This is really like pricking me. And so my, the, with all of this, studying the Sermon on the Mount, I realize that I am incapable of passing on even a sliver of what God is like decimating in my own life as I study this sermon. And so your homework, what I want you to encourage you to do is this week, this, this last little, it's, it's 29 verses in Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 49. Could you read it once a day? Could you read it a couple times a day? See, you read it, and then you'll be going about your business, in, in the day, not your business, but whatever you do during the day, and you're thinking, man, like, seriously, next week we're going to get to part. Jesus says, if you loan somebody money, don't expect it back. I got a hard time with that one. <laughs> and I'll be going, wait, you want me to loan money? Because is it loaning if I, that sounds like giving money away. And see, that's meditating. You're thinking upon it. And then email me or talk to your spouse or talk to your kids. What's going on? What do you think about this? 
You start discussing it. We're all going to wrestle through it. Email me the hard questions. Ask me the hard questions because then I'll go, I got to start thinking about that one. And as you meditate upon the word, it's amazing what God does. It's amazing how he'll use this sermon. We have access to the world's greatest preacher. This is God who spoke this sermon to us. We have access to it. You can read it. You can open a pad. You can write down questions. You can read those questions and you can say, Lord, I need help understanding this. And he'll respond. So I encourage you to get into the word, to study it. Go over this Sermon on the Mount because, you know what, I'm going to need all kinds of help this month going through it. Because I don't like this stuff as much as you guys. It's not me offending you. It's not me stepping on your toes. It's the big guy upstairs. But as we allow him to cut us, to convict us, to shape us, to mold us, our lives get transformed, and it's amazing. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we admit, Lord, we struggle in understanding these deep truths that you've spoken to us. Father, we're thankful that in Christ and believing upon him, Lord, that we're transformed, that we're sealed with the Spirit, that we're issued a passport for heaven, where our citizenship is now. And Lord, we can't even begin to fathom what heaven is like, other than the words that you spoke to us in your word. And so, Father, as we read your sermon, as we study the Bible, as we ponder it, as we meditate upon it, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning, that we would understand what it's saying. Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to follow after you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.